The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech. Kilion and Mahlon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Mahlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with this property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Then, this then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David. And this is the word of the Lord.
Surprises. If there's any day of the year to think about the idea of surprises, it's this one. I mean, in in so many ways, this is what makes Christmas so exciting, especially for young children, as they anticipate the, the gifts that await them under the tree. But of course, we know about surprises, we think about surprises, we anticipate surprises in other areas of life as well. Uh, when we think about surprises, it may, it, it may be a, a thoughtful gift that someone has given you, maybe a party that has been planned that you knew nothing about. But there's also another kind of surprise that we often like, and that is a surprise ending, a, a twist at the end of a story that we, that we couldn't see coming that changes everything and causes us to reinterpret everything that has transpired in a different light. And it brings that sense of resolution and satisfaction as we exhale and enjoy uh, the, 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 the climax of a great, well-told surprise story. Well, that's exactly what awaits us this morning in our Bibles uh, at, in Ruth chapter 4. Please turn with me there to the final chapter of Ruth. As you're making your way there. I'll, I'll just briefly bring you up to speed on what's happened so far. It's, it's 3,100 years ago in ancient Israel, and we're following one particular family. After being away in the pagan country of Moab due to a famine in Bethlehem, Naomi returns to town, but her life has been hollowed out. Uh, a decade earlier, she left with one husband and two sons. Now she's back with no husband and no sons. The only person with her is her widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabite, who has made a shocking choice to leave her own homeland for good. Naomi, where, where you go, Ruth says, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. When they arrive, the, the women of Bethlehem are, are bewildered. Is that Nate? Naomi? No, and she, she interrupts them. She says, no, I, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Marah, which means bitter, because I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The hand of the Almighty has gone out against me. The story then recounts how Ruth finds surprising favor in the eyes of a prominent landowner named Boaz, who just happens to be a relative of Naomi's family, which gets... Naomi to start thinking and she gets an idea and so she hatches this daring plan that involves Ruth under cover of darkness boldly proposing to Boaz in the hopes that he'll provide rest for her. Well how does Boaz respond to Ruth's audacious request? Remember chapter 3 starting in verse 11. Now my daughter don't be afraid. I'll do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he isn't willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. And then in the final verse there in chapter 3, Naomi says to Ruth, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. 
So Boaz has promised to seek security for them. Naomi trusts he'll at least make the attempt. But the question is, will he succeed? Which brings us to chapter 4. Here's what I think is the main idea of chapter 4 and therefore the main idea of this sermon. We are foreigners until God brings us into his family. We are foreigners until God brings us into his family. Rest in the Redeemer born for you and delight in the inheritance won for you. We are foreigners until God brings us into his family. Rest in the Redeemer born for you and delight in the inheritance won for you. And we're going to think about this main idea over the course of three scenes. We'll, we'll just title them deliberation, celebration, and anticipation. So deliberation, that's verses 1 to 12. Celebration, that's verses 13 to 16. And anticipation, that's verses 17 to the end. Deliberation, celebration, and anticipation. First, deliberation. Look there at verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there. Okay, so he's wasting no time. This is a man of integrity. He will not be deterred until he makes good on his word. Why the town gate? Well, that's where official business was conducted. Boaz wants this legal proceeding to happen in public so that everything will be on record and above board. Remember back at the beginning of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 3, when the narrator said, as it turned out, it, it, remember, it just so happened that Ruth stumbled into, of all fields, Boaz's. Well, the same thing is going on here. Boaz sits down at the town gate, quote, just as the guardian redeemer he'd mentioned came along. Again, the narrator is having a bit of fun, telling us with a kind of twinkle in his eye, and wouldn't you know, at just the right moment comes just the right person. Because of course, none of this, none of this is left to chance. Even though he may be invisible behind the curtain, God is choreographing every movement in this drama. End of verse 1, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. There's some subtle humor in the Hebrew here as well. What Boaz literally calls this guy is something like so-and-so. It's a hint, again, another hint, that this guy will be different than the other characters in the story. We'll see why in a moment. Verse 2 Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. So he, he convenes this quorum of local leaders to act as a ruling body, and then the formal discussion begins. Verse 3, Boaz said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. The, the key detail here to understand is that Mr. So-and-so is a closer relative to Naomi than Boaz is. And therefore, he has the legal right and arguably the moral responsibility 
to buy back Elimelech's land in order to keep it in the family. This is an old principle from Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25, verse 25. Quote, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. Now, if you've been tracking with the story so far, you might be a little confused here. I thought Naomi was destitute. What's this about her being a landowner? Well, most likely, there's a plot of land as part of a common field that had belonged to her husband, but Naomi has no resources to work it. She has the right, but not the means. So in verse 4, Boaz addresses this first-in-line family redeemer. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy the land in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. We know by this point that Boaz is more than happy to marry Ruth, but he is unwilling to cut corners. I defer to you, he says, to the, to the nearest relative. You've got the first right of refusal. Let's not forget, by the way, what era we're in. Okay, This is the time of the judges. People are doing what's right in their own eyes. Surely some people would have looked at a guy like Boaz in the time of the judges and just thought, man, you are, you are morally uptight. I mean, can't you just imagine people saying, loosen up, Boaz. You you don't have to be such a legalist. Just marry the girl. But he's a man of uncommon character. While everyone else is busy doing what's right in their own eyes, Boaz intends to do what's right in God's. And this is how it is with, with any person of integrity. When the choice is between what's what's obedient And what's convenient? Obedience wins. Even when there's risk involved. See, Boaz is doing something risky. He's risking losing Ruth to Mr. So-and-so. But he understands the cost. That, 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 That is the cost of following the word of God. Beloved, this is a an appropriate time to just ask yourself the, the question and answer the question honestly. Well, what is one way in, in my life right now that, that, I'm, that I'm tempted to cut a moral corner, look for a loophole, stop short of full obedience to God's word? Because otherwise, we think, otherwise, I might not get what I want. There's a lot we can learn from the integrity of this Israelite. Oh, beloved, we should should beware of elevating convenience, elevating what we'd prefer over what God has directed, over trusting that his way is best. Well, how will Mr. So-and-so respond? I mean, 
Surely he's going to decline, right? I mean, this is a love story. He has to decline. (laughs) Of course, he's just going to say, Boaz, my old relative, the land is all yours. Verse 4, I will redeem it. (gasps) Like, what? This is the moment when an Israelite family sitting around a campfire listening to this story would have all sat up. No! Like, no! This is not what is supposed to happen. But it does. He says plainly, I will do it. And the reason is because financially, this offer was actually a a no-brainer. As one commentator explains, Quote, for very little money, the man could carry out a respected family duty and perhaps enhance his civic reputation. Financially, the investment was a bargain without risk. His little investment would develop into years of productive, profitable harvests. It would enlarge the inheritance of his heirs. How could he lose? But Boaz isn't finished. He's still got one more card to put down, one more detail to share. Verse 5, then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire, that is, are required to marry Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. In other words, it's a package deal. The land comes with her. Now, at this point, Mr. So-and-so's wheels start turning. So, so I'm not just going to have a nice piece of property to add to my portfolio. I'm going to have to marry a foreigner who's young enough to have a son, which means if she does, all the land will go to him rather than to my own son's. So basically, I'm going to be a, a stand-in father and a stand-in husband and likely father on behalf of a dead man in order to perpetuate his name, not mine, his. Now, this might sound like a crazy scenario to us, but in this culture, it was imperative not to let a male relative's name die out. This is why the law of leveret marriage existed. Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5 and 6. If brothers are living together and one dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So, just so you're clear on the the dilemma facing this man, the, the first son born to him in Ruth will not be recognized as his own. He'll be linked to Ruth's late husband, Malon, and, and the child would, will carry on his name and inherit the estate. And, and, and that's why you, you also have to wonder if Mr. So-and-so is thinking, and he mentioned the Ruth the Moabite, like marrying an unclean Moabite may not be the best thing for my social standing. Well, how does he respond now? We're, we're, we're still holding our breath. Verse 6, at this, 
the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. This is a sense of relief we're, we're meant to feel as the nearer relative backs out of the deal. The moment he realized that it would come at a cost, that the investment would come at a cost to his own bottom line, his own legacy, what happened? He lost interest. And here lies the irony, the rich irony in the narrative. The the authors of Scripture are literary geniuses. They are masterful storytellers. Here is the irony. Because this man refused to, in Boaz's words, maintain the name of the dead, he himself has no name. His anonymity is a mark of judgment. It's as if the narrator is making eye contact with us and saying, you see this guy who refuses to take responsibility? He'll have no further significance. Brothers and sisters, there's a warning here for us as well. Because it is so easy, so effortless, so dangerous to live your life with the mentality How's this situation, this thing, this circumstance, this interaction, how is this going to benefit me? Is there any relationship in your life that, that you approach this way? What's, it, what's in it for me? Is this how you are tempted to think about involvement in church? Oh, friend, it is not the mark of a mature believer to approach relationships like a transaction. As you look ahead to a new year, what is one way, one practical way that you can resolve to put someone else's interests, someone else's well-being before your own? I mean, for some of you, that might be with a, a difficult coworker. It might be with your spouse. Maybe when you were dating, you were used to laying down your preferences, going out of your way to inconvenience yourself and sacrifice for their good, but now you've just kind of gotten into autopilot and it's no longer really about them. Maybe it's a roommate. Kids, maybe it's one of your siblings that that you're just having a really hard time getting along with, a hard time loving, a hard time preferring and putting ahead of yourself. Maybe you need maybe you need a brand new way of approaching and, and conceiving of service in the church, in this family, even when it doesn't seem any longer like the sweetest deal. If you're tempted to pull back from relationships, and I'm just speaking frankly in love here to all of us, including me, If you're tempted to pull back from relationships when they start to come at a cost to you, then is it really accurate to say you love people? Or does the fact that you pull back when it comes at a cost reveal that in the final analysis, you really just love yourself? Well, now that the closer relative has said, never mind, uh, the, the transfer just needs to be 
certified. So verse 7, you'll see, is set off in parentheses because the narrator is explaining a practice that's not just foreign to us, it had actually died out by the time this story was written down. But handing off your sandal, it was this symbolic way of transferring, or in the case of Mr. So-and-so, abdicating the right of redemption. Verse 9, then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I've bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Just look at where Boaz's focus is. In one statement, he speaks of five other people, three of whom are already dead, who are going to benefit without a single mention of what's in it for himself. It is a stark and striking contrast to Mr. So-and-so. Boaz is utterly unconcerned with his own name, and therefore, we remember it still today. Well, how does the onlooking crowd reply? Verse 11, Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. This is exalted language. And if you're paying attention, it's a little jarring. Because what they're saying is, may this foreign woman... This unclean Moabite be like one of the matriarchs of Israel. This is no tame Hallmark card. They're not saying, okay, we'll accept her. Boaz, if you, if you love her, she can be like a, and they're speaking poetically, she, she can be like an exterior decoration on the house of God. No, it's may the, this outsider become a pillar, a centerpiece for the future of God's people. They're saying, they're saying, just as God, verse 12, is saying, just as God carried on the promised line of Judah through Tamar, the Canaanite, may he continue to carry it on through Ruth, the Moabite. Well, with Mr. So-and-so finally now out of the picture, the way is clear. The way is clear for the wedding we've wanted. That's point two, celebration. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Do you see the reversal that has taken place? This is a story filled with reversals. And here is one. How did things begin in chapter one with three funerals? And now in one verse, we have a wedding and a baby. The people just prayed that God would make Ruth like, like whom? Like Rachel and Leah, both of whom knew the pain of barrenness. 
Ruth herself was married for 10 years in Moab and didn't have a single child. Here, the Lord steps in and opens her womb and plants life where there had been no hope. Do you know how many times in the book of Ruth, God directly intervenes? I mean, he shows up on the lips of various characters, but do you know how many times God steps in as the acting subject of a sentence? Only two. The first is at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 6, when Naomi is in Moab and she hears that the Lord has come to the aid of his people back in Bethlehem by providing food for them. They were starving in the house of bread, and he's provided bread for them. And the only other time when God directly intervenes is right here. Chapter 4, verse 14, the Lord enabled Ruth to conceive. I mean, we have the birds, we have the God's eye view of this story. We know how it starts. We know how it transpires. We know how it ends. These characters didn't. They weren't able to read the book of Ruth. They were living it, which means that it would have been so easy for Naomi to just stare into the void of 10 years of famine. Ruth, staring at 10 years of negative pregnancy tests and just conclude. I mean, how how could they not conclude that God would never show up? It doesn't mean they're atheists. It just means he's busy helping other people. He's, he's busy doing other things. But surely circumstances have shown. It's not like we're talking about 10 hours or 10 days or 10 months. This is 10 years. Surely circumstances have shown that Ruth and Naomi are just bit players in his drama. They're, they're incidental to his great plans. Some of you right now are dealing with the pain of unmet desire. Unmet desire. Maybe you desire to be married and God hasn't given you that gift. Maybe maybe you desire to have a child and, and you're dealing with infertility or secondary infertility or miscarriage. You just can't conceive when you look at your circumstances that God might be up to anything redemptive in, in your little story. I mean, theologically, you know better, but when, when, when you look at the situation, you, you just can't conceive of a world, of a way in which God is up to something grand in your little journey. The lesson of this book, though, is not that God will, if you just wait long enough, give you every desire of your heart in this life. The lesson of this book is that you dare not doubt God's care for you, his affection for you, his commitment to you. Because as we've seen over and over in these pages, if there's anything I want you to remember from this little series on Ruth, it is that God is always, always up to more than you can see. Verse 14, the women said to Naomi, 
Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. In the Hebrew Scriptures, seven is the number of perfection, completion. This is the highest possible tribute, therefore. The highest possible tribute that Ruth could have received in a culture where a woman's value could literally be counted based on the number of her sons. But the chorus of voices here are saying, Ruth, uh, Naomi, one Ruth, one Ruth is better than seven sons. Better than a perfect family. But here's what's even more interesting. It's been clear ever since chapter 2 and especially into chapter 3 and then it getting legally certified in chapter 4, it has been clear through the whole story that the primary human redeemer in this story is Boaz. Right? And he is. But therefore, it's really surprising to hear what the women say to Naomi in verse 14. Did you catch that? Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. They're not speaking to Ruth. They're speaking to Naomi. And what's surprising if you follow the grammar in verse 15 is that they are not talking about Boaz. They're talking about his son, who's resting in Naomi's arms. Why is that? Well, it's, it's not that this child, rather than Boaz, is the Redeemer, but that the child is the one in whom Naomi's redemption is realized. He is the heir to the family name and the family estate she thought she'd never get back. Brothers and sisters, we serve a God. We must remember this. We serve a God who specializes in the unexpected, in the surprise ending. He is no less the author of your little story than he was of Naomi's. As the psalmist prays, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before even one of them came to be. The psalmist compares your life to a book, to a story. What scenes have occurred in the story of your life that have surprised you? What chapters have been written that at one point you could have never seen coming? What plot lines were you sure would be part of your biography that up to this point haven't been? But even though your story as it stands today is not the one you maybe would have written, can any of you stand up and say that God has failed to do all things well? Can't we even praise him for some unmet desires, for some unanswered prayers? He delights to bring joy where there was no hope. See, this scene with Naomi here in chapter 4 
is, is the foil to chapter 1. Remember what she said to the townswomen in chapter 1 when she returned. Probably the same women who were right here surrounding her and the baby. She said, I went away to Moab full, but I have returned empty. The Lord has brought me back empty. So in chapter 1, the Lord in sovereign goodness impoverishes her. In chapter 4, the Lord in sovereign goodness restores her. And not just by satisfying her hunger, but by giving her a family tree. And why this lofty blessing at the end about the child, this baby redeemer, may the child become famous throughout Israel. I mean, the audacity of that. It's enough that the child exists. (laughs) Why the need to go further and talk about fame in the land? Well, the reason is because this child represents far more than just Naomi's personal redemption. And that's point three, anticipation. Anticipation. Verse 17, the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then verses 18 to 22 chart 10 generations from Boaz's ancestor Perez to his own great grandson. That number 10 is not accidental. Way back in Deuteronomy 23, Moses had sworn that no Moabite could ever enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the what generation? The 10th generation. And then Ruth chapter 1 takes place in Moab. And how many years are they there in loss and grief? Ten years. But look how it ends. Because of the gutsy faith of a Moabite girl, this ordinary lineage will become a royal genealogy spanning ten generations until the arrival of the king. Remember, this story takes place during the time of the judges when there was no king in the land. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Moral anarchy and chaos abound, but it will not last forever. Friends, these final verses about David are the punchline of the whole saga. At this point, the Israelite family around the fire, around the campfire, they're not just sitting up. At this point, they are standing up. Boaz and Ruth's boy is going to become famous in Israel above and beyond the townspeople's prayers because he will become the grandfather of none other than King David himself. And no, this is not the last time Boaz and Ruth's little boy shows up in your Bible. Turn with me to the opening page of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. This is how it begins. Look first at Matthew 1 verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. That should all sound familiar. Now, 
whose genealogy is this? Verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of Ruth is a little story of redemption in the ultimate story of redemption. In the first chapter, God visited his people by giving them bread. But a thousand years later, he visited them again by giving them himself, the bread of life. Here in the last chapter, we see that Boaz is willing to pay the price to lay down his reputation in his interests in order to secure a Gentile bride. Just as Boaz was qualified to redeem because he was a close relative, legally he could only redeem because he was related to Naomi and Naomi's husband. So Jesus became like one of us. He entered the human family. He was like us in every respect except for sin so that he could be qualified in every, de- in every way to redeem us. Boaz, we just saw, was not reluctant to redeem, was he? He wasn't reluctant like Mr. So-and-so. He was resolved to redeem Ruth. And a thousand years later, one of his descendants, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be born in his hometown, Bethlehem, and would grow up with resolve. He wouldn't live out his days in Bethlehem. He would actually set his face toward Jerusalem. And for the joy set before him, he would endure the cross, scorning its shame, being seated at the right hand of the throne of God in order to buy back from sin and Satan and death everyone who would cling to him by faith. See, Boaz was a virtuous man. We've we've seen that throughout this story. He was a virtuous man who redeemed Ruth because he saw in her something attractive. He redeemed Ruth because she was a woman of noble character. But how much greater is the virtue of one who would redeem his enemies, even at infinite cost to himself? See, Boaz made a sacrifice by giving up his name for someone else. Boaz agreed to raise up a son for someone else. He gave up his name, but Jesus gave up all the splendor of heaven in order to come and to suffer in the place of rebels like us, self-interested people like Mr. So-and-so and like you and me. How glorious, you want to know how glorious the one is to whom Boaz points. You want to know why we're not here to celebrate Boaz? Think of the most self-centered person you know. Don't say it out loud. Hopefully they're not seated on your row. But think about the most self-centered person you know. The distance between them and the virtuous Boaz is like a fraction compared to the distance between Boaz and Jesus Christ. Oh, come, let us adore him. And, and, and don't miss also that Naomi's redemption here, the whole reason it could happen, was due to her relationship. See, even though she had lost everything, she had nothing to her name, 
she happened to be tied relationally to someone else. She was tied relationally to Ruth and through Ruth and Boaz to Obed. That's why in verse 17, the townswomen can say, not Ruth has a son, but they say Naomi. Naomi has a son. Listen, just as the two widows' security in this story was ensured through the marriage to Boaz, if you submit yourself in faith to King Jesus, if you come under the shadow of his wing, then the ultimate transfer happens. The legal proceedings that we saw at the beginning of this chapter are not the most important transfer to think about this morning. If you come to Jesus Christ in faith, then here is what happens in the courtroom of heaven. His status becomes your status. His wealth becomes your wealth. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. His past becomes your past, and his future becomes your future. One commentator observes, the book ends in a way that we do not expect. Boaz and our heroine Ruth are gone from sight. Have you noticed that? Boaz and Ruth are gone from sight, a clear indication that this book is finally something other than a romance. In the end, only the old woman is left, holding the child who is her future and that of her people. Remember, we can only see, much less comprehend, We can only see the tiniest fraction of God's doings. Even Naomi, I said this earlier, but it's worth reiterating, even Naomi, for all the fullness that she's now receiving, she didn't get to read the end of the story. She died before knowing that her family would become royalty. Do not, friend, Do not limit your expectation to to the horizon of this life. Your expectation of what God can do to the horizon of this life, much less this season. If this story has taught us anything, it's that God is relentlessly good and worthy of trust, even when he seems hidden, because again, he is always up to more, more, more than we can see. The story of Ruth focuses on the redemption of a widow, but it is finally about the redemption of a world. Praise the Lord, beloved, who this day has not left us without a Redeemer, who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for sending Jesus into a feeding trough to be the king of glory, the king of ages, the savior that we needed but didn't realize. Lord, we praise you that that Jesus lived the life we have failed to live. He died the death we deserve to die, bearing the penalty for our rebellion in our place for our sin. And three days later, he vacated his tomb so that anyone who puts their trust in him, who comes and doesn't just mouth the words of a Christmas song, but comes and adores him from their heart, can be made brand new and have everlasting life and fullness with you.
And it's in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.